As you know, I have been uh, beginning our lectures each week by reminding us of what the most important verse in the Bible is relative to understanding Daniel, Revelation, or uh, the end times as a whole. And that is in Romans 15.4. It's at the bottom of your sheet. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Amen. My friends, this is so important. And I, I, as I was praying, I reminded myself of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. This comfort comes because we have hope. Hope in the God who will meet us. And if we wrap all this seven weeks up into two words, it's this. God wins. Amen? And because God wins, we don't have to fight about it, but uh, we can playfully argue, which you will undoubtedly see next week. So what I want to do now is two weeks ago, I took a little bit of time and we outlined in general some of the uh, millennial views. And for some reason, I did not get you a copy of the charts in your hands. And I didn't bring one up here with me. But the last sheet of your packet should have all of the, the charts that I admittedly stole right off the internet. And you can go find them. There's, there's tons of charts and uh, that give kind of an outline of the various views. And so two weeks ago, we talked about the post-millennial view. And then last week, our elder George Huff talked about the dispensational view. And tonight, I'm going to cover two views. And I'm going to kind of do it in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to... The premillennialists and the amillennialists are always fighting with each other. And they're saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And so we're going to do that tonight. And we're going to uh, talk about their different critiques of each other. But before I get started on that, I want to echo uh, George's advice last week and say that just going online is not necessarily a good idea because there is a lot of vitriol online about the different views. And so these are my two different introductory books, my favorite introductory books. The first one is Contemporary Options in Eschatology, A Study of the Millennium. Millard Erickson wrote the systematic theology that I used in, in um, Seminary One. And this is a good introduction written by one guy. He happens to be biased in the right direction as a historic pre-mill guy. And this one is written or it's edited by a guy named uh, Robert Klaus. And he has 
Four people, each of whom take the respective views that they're writing about. And so they'll have 30 pages. Uh, George Ladd is talking about the historic pre-mill, for example. Herman Hoyt is dispensational. Uh, Lorraine Bettner is post-mill. And Anthony Hokema is the ah-mill. And so they have, say, 30 pages where they outline what they see. And then each of the other three will come and they'll get about 10 pages to say why they think the other guy was wrong. And so it's, it's an interesting outline. If you want to get a point, counterpoint kind of uh, introduction to this, that's what this one's good for. If you want to get an overall view written by one person who kind of discusses all the way through, that's what Millard Erickson is good for. Yes. Uh, the Meaning of the Millennium by Robert Klaus. The subtitle is Four Views. And then Contemporary Options in Eschatology, subtitle A Study of the Millennium by Millard Erickson. Now these are fairly straightforward. I think anybody who is interested in the subject will take the effort to be able to uh, read these. Uh, if you are interested, if you say, wait a minute, I want to get actually a little more in depth, I think that's perfectly fine. And both Pastor Benji, James, and I would be happy to give you some ideas towards that end as well. Okay, let's get the Amil slide up on the, forget which number it is. Remember, amillennialism is this idea where you have the beginning of time, essentially Adam to the time of Christ, or the Old Testament prophetic era here, and time just happens. And then what you have is you have the cross of Christ, and remember, when I say the cross of Christ, I am including the entire weekend, okay? Jesus died, he, well, he instituted the new covenant on Thursday, died on Friday, rose on Sunday. I am considering all of those one event, even though they took three days or four days, depending on how you count. But that's what, that's what happens here. Now, the Amil, they believe, they draw this little dotted line here because what they're saying is Satan is bound. And they look at Matthew 12, 28, which we're going to look at in a second. Well, I'll just read it to you. Uh, Matthew 12, 28 and 29. Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, the Amil interpretation of that verse is that Satan is bound, meaning that he will not deceive the nations anymore. I said this a couple of weeks ago that the Amil view looks at Israel, which is a come and see religion. Come to the temple. Come and see how we worship. Come and sing with us and be circumcised, eat kosher, celebrate at the temple. And um, what's the fourth one? Um, I'm missing one. Do all this so that you can join the Jews and be saved. But then in the New Testament era, we have a go and tell religion. And so they say that the go and tell necessitates that Satan is bound and he cannot deceive the nations and stop them from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
simultaneous to Satan being bound in the same time continuum as the Old Testament, you have what's called the New Testament kingdom, the church, the people of God who live on the earth and are, in fact, going and telling what's going on in the gospel. This is what we are living right now. At some point, however, Satan is loosed. Uh, we read about this in a couple places, most uh, notably at the end of Revelation. And when Satan is loose, the time continuum on which we are living, uh, we may not be able to see it, but it goes in a steep decline. And at the end of this decline, we have uh, Christ's return, the great tribulation, Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, which in the amillennial mind, this eternal kingdom, this eternal state is heaven. That's where we are going to be for all time. And uh, we're not going to get into the discussion of whether that's on earth or renewed earth. We're not going to get into that, although that is also an interesting question. One of the characteristics of the Amil view is that this great tribulation is actually a part of the church age. And so we're not really sure. You, you see Christians dying by the thousands in Syria, in Sudan, in Chad. You see these Christians are being persecuted. And the amillennialists will say, see, look at that. That is the great tribulation happening at the same time as the church age. So you have the kingdom going on. And in this kingdom, you have also the tribulation. But there's something about Christ reigning. And this idea of Christ reigning has to happen during this time in which we are living. In the number three New Testament kingdom or the church. And so what they believe is that when a Christian dies in the church age, right now, if one of us were to pass away, then that person would go into what is called the intermediate state. By the way, all Christians believe what I'm saying right now. So let me, let me distinguish that. The intermediate state is this time where we are separated from our bodies, but our spirits, the immaterial part of us, go and are with Christ. Now the amillennialists add to this idea of going to be with Christ, and they say they are reigning with Christ. According to Revelation chapter 20, reigning with Christ. So the reigning happens... At the same time, I guess if you wanted to, to make this chart more complicated, you would have a line up here, and the line up here would be the saints reigning in the intermediate state right now. Okay, kind of nod at me if you've more or less followed. Okay, I'm, I'm getting a fair percentage. So... Now, what I want to do is I want to go through uh, Wayne Grudem wrote 
in my opinion, the systematic theology. It is the systematic theology because it is very easy to understand. He does a great job introducing all the topics and he tells you where to go if you want to dig deeper. And I think he's also right on most issues as well. But notice he's, it's, it's a great systematic theology because he kind of lays the issues out and then you can make up your mind. Well, one of the things that he did is he outlined the arguments for uh, amillennialism. And so what I want to do is I want to go through, and these are in your notes, I want to go through these arguments, but then I'm going to give my comebacks to those arguments because I don't think that they're right. And I'm using his comebacks to the arguments sometimes. And point on your second page, amillennialism or realized millennialism, A, there is, after all, only one disputed passage that mentions the millennium. And that's true. The millennium, the word millennium occurs six times in one passage. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. But my answer to that is, well, how many times does the Bible need to say something for it to be true? Do you realize the Bible only talks about Babel in exactly one spot? Does anybody here doubt that Babel, that happened? Anybody? No, of course not. The Bible only needs to say something once for it to be true. And furthermore, I would say that the disputed passage in Revelation 20 is disputed because the amillennialists don't take it as it's intended to be understood. Now them's fighting words. And, and, and you'll, hear, you'll hear a response about that next week. But I... But I think that's a fair, if you're going to say Revelation 20 is the only passage where there's a millennium, I'm going to say, yeah, but it's only disputed because you don't want to understand it as it's meant to be understood. But the third point on this is that there are passages where it appears that the world has changed, but sin remains. I was going to read these whole passages to you. Write a couple of these down in your notes if you want. Um, but th there are several of them. Psalm 72, 8 to 14. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 is a great passage that seems to indicate that there is a radical difference in this. There, there's something different about the normal time frame so it could be the eternal state. It could be heaven. But at the same time, there's still things like sin and death. And when we get to the eternal state and we get to heaven, there's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more death, right? So if that's true, then we have several passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 Isaiah is chock full of them. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, and Isaiah chapter 65 are passages where something is happening that's different than the eternal state. Um, and I'll just read one of them. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Actually, that's supposed to be in the next, 
the next line. And, and the next one is that there are passages which indicate that there is some reigning going on. And in heaven, there won't need to be reigning in terms of pushing evil down and lifting good up. Whereas I would say that that is very true in the millennium because death and sin will still be in existence. So that's the first point. And you can come up and copy down some. You know what? I'm sorry. We had problems with the slides. I was going to have this all on slides so you can copy it down. But we had some problems with that. Maybe next week I'll just give you all my notes if you want. Uh, the second point for amillennialism is that the Bible speaks of one resurrection. But premillennialism, whether it's dispensational or historic... I'm using the term premillennialism right now to mean both. This is what dispensationalists believe, and this is what historic premill believes. Uh, we're very close on many things. Premillennialism necessitates two resurrections. Now, I want to say that there are passages that indicate that there's one resurrection. Uh, you, you don't need to write these down, but Daniel 12, 2, Acts 24, 15, and John 5, 28, and 29 all speak of one resurrection. And that's where the amillennialists go to and they say the Bible talks about one, one resurrection, one bringing up of the dead back to life. And I say, amen. Those, those passages all mention one revelation. But none of them exclude the possibility that there's two. And when you get to the ought not to be disputed passage in Revelation 20, it mentions the fact that there are two. So does it surprise us that we have a clear passage at the end of the Bible that clarifies that there are in fact two because we see this exact same thing happen all the way through the Old Testament. There's one God. There's one God. There's one God. There's one God. In the New Testament, what do we get? There's one God. Oh, and by the way, there's three persons. So it doesn't surprise me at all that, that, that we can have these clear passages that seem to indicate one resurrection, but none of which say there's only one resurrection. They all leave open the opportunity that there might be a second. Now, uh, I want to say Sam Storms is a... Uh, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and he at one time was a dispensationalist and he uh, migrated when you listen to his testimony he said he went through the correct view the historic premillennialist view and then he kept going and he landed on the Amil view and he wrote a book called uh, Kingdom Come and in this he's talking about this particular issue and I really appreciated what he said. He said, uh, I, didn't, I didn't quote him. I should have quoted him. But he said, uh, hey, listen, I might be wrong on this idea about the two resurrections. I think that there's one. And, I, and he gives these, these verses. But you know what? It, it's possible. And I, I think that took a lot of humility, which God will bless. Amen? We heard that this morning. Okay, 
This third point that amillennialists make is they ask it as a question. They say, will glorified believers dwell on the earth that has not been renewed with unglorified people? Okay, let me set this up because this is a little bit complicated. When a Christian dies and they're in this intermediate state, they're immaterial part is separated from this, this physical part. And the resurrection is when God calls the bodies out of the grave, the sea will give up its dead and the grave will give up its dead, and we will be reunited with our bodies. Uh, and this is, this is an enormously important point. We are not meant to be some merely spiritual being. That is, that comes from Greek philosophy, not the New Testament. Uh, and we can spend a lot of time on that, which we won't. But we are in essence, who we are made to be are this weird hybrid of physical and immaterial part of us. And so, Though in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we want to be with the Lord. We want to be in this intermediate state. We also don't want to be unclothed. We want our physical body reunited with our spiritual body, our immaterial self, and be whole. And so what we call that, the word that Christians use for that idea is glorified body. We will one day receive a glorified body. And my shoulder won't hurt all the time. My eyes won't be nearly blind without contacts. Is anybody with me on this so far? Yes. Okay. We all get that. And we will have glorified bodies and we will then live forever. Now, the amillennial, or excuse me, the premillennialist contends that, um, can you go to the premillennial? Slide just for a second, please. The, the premillennialist contends that the saints are resurrected, the, the dead in Christ will be raised, and then 1 Thessalonians says that he will call up or call out uh, those who are alive in Christ and we will be raptured. That's the difference, by the way, between resurrection and rapture. Resurrection, the saint has passed away, died body, soul, separated, and then rejoined together at the resurrection. And the rapture is if he comes right now, he just, and we're gone, there is none of this separation of the material and the immaterial. And so what will happen, the premillennialist believes, is that then we will go through the millennial kingdom and there will be those of us who are alive today who will have glorified bodies. Well, there will also be people who live with bodies more or less like the ones we have right now. And so the amillennialist is saying, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make sense. How can you have people with glorified bodies and people with non-glorified bodies living at the same time through this thousand year period? Does, do you understand where we're at on the question? Well, let me give you the answer. Apparently, Jesus Christ did it for 40 days. See, compare especially Matthew 28, 17. And apparently, some Old Testament saints did it for a short time in Matthew 27, where the 
the, there were several of the Old Testament saints who ended up walking out of the grave. Now, if you want to get really weird, they walk out as zombies? Nah, I, I don't buy that. I, I think they had their glorified bodies. And furthermore, uh, part of the point that the amillennialist makes in this distinction between there are going to be glorified bodied saints and then there are going to be unglorified bodied, well, both saints and non Christians at the same time is that wait a minute if you're over here and you're in the unglorified body living through the millennium you're going to say man I want what they got right you're going to say I want that look I see them they're obviously different I want to be a Christian like they are but ultimately all sin is irrational let me say this again. All sin is ultimately a step away from reality. It is irrational. It is not according to how things really are. Another thing that Pastor Benji said today is that pride is the root of sin. And what did, what did we talk about there? He said, pride is this idea that I can make myself as if I am God. Holy smokes, talk about irrational. Right? Let me tell you, folks, I am not God. But I don't think I shocked any of you guys by saying that either, did I? Especially my wife or my boys. They're not shocked. So... Are there going to be people who see Jesus reigning in Jerusalem and they see us co-reigning with him around on the earth that are going to say at the end of the millennium, whatever. Yeah, that's exactly what I think is going to happen. Point number four. Oh, actually, I guess I, I combined those two points. Uh, how, if Christ is ruling on the earth, will people resist? If unbelievers enter the millennium, be, oh, um, so right here we have the great tribulation, and this line is there to distinguish realities, and. This, this reality here is where we are living now. But there's going to come a time when Jesus reigns and much of the curse on the earth is lifted. And so we will have a different kind of life. It, it will be fundamentally different. And then we get to the eternal state. And it really will be different. Because in the eternal state there will be no more death and there will be no more sin. But in this time here, we are going to have the perfect government. We are going to have, I assume, technology that is going to really enhance our life instead of just give us soul cancer. We are going to have, um, obviously, be able to see people who have received Christ and our lives are changed. And we are going to have a good culture. Well, the three things, and Satan is going to be bound. Satan will not be deceiving the nations anymore. Well, if you look at that, Satan, 
perfect government. The only thing left to cause a problem is what? My sinful heart. The sinful hearts of the people who are living through the millennial kingdom. And so, obviously, at this point in the tribulation, there are going to be enemies of Christ who have lived through the tribulation and they will bow the knee. Not because they want to love God, but because they don't want to be blasted. They don't want to be executed. And I think God will let them into the millennium. Now let me give a difference between the dispensationalists and this in my view. The dispensationalist says what I just said a little bit differently. They say that it's not unbelievers who enter the millennium. It's Israel that has repented. And Israel that has repented will bow the knee before their Messiah and Jesus will say, come in to the kingdom and those will be the people who seed the population of the millennial kingdom. I, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that in principle. But I think that what's going to happen is the church, everybody who is a believer will be raptured. We'll talk about this on June 7th, the rapture. Will be raptured... Um, and um, come back down to reign. And so it's going to be unbelievers who live in natural bodies here and then go through the millennial kingdom. Now, some of those non-believers are going to come to Christ. Perfect government. Satan is bound. We have a partially renewed or at least bettered creation than we have right now. And they're going to say, okay, sounds good to me. I want to be a Christian. But some obviously will not. Because however you cut it, you get, you get to the end here. Nice. To number six. And when you get to number six, what you have is Satan is let out of his prison. And people say, Satan, yeah, let's go with him. What? Remember, sin is ultimately irrational. And the people will rebel. I, I don't know how else to say it. But you know as well as I do, from your own heart, and from the hearts of the people who are around you, that people make just asinine decisions. And you just wonder, what? I mean, you know, I understand... Uh, Normal evil. Sorry, that's... Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, that, that alone is, is dumb, right? Okay, another comment that amillennialists make is there is no convincing purpose for the millennium. Okay, here is a combination of me and I quote George Ladd. I'll tell you when I start quoting him. God's grace and his judgment will be vindicated by his perfect rule and the rebellion of those who refuse to submit. God is glorified by people who refuse to submit. Lord, may I never glorify you in that manner. God, from the beginning, has been patiently unfolding his purposes throughout history. Now I'm quoting. Sin, rebellion against God, is not due to an evil society or to a bad environment. Satan is bound. Perfect law, perfect government. 
It is due to the sinfulness of the hearts of Greg Burtnett. Thus, the justice of God will be fully vindicated in the day of final judgment. That's George Ladd that I'm quoting from this book, The Meaning of the Millennium. Now, uh, one of the dispensationalists I was reading, one of the things he added to that was it could be that part of the purpose of the millennium is to reward the Jews who are faithful. Could be. I'm, I, might, I might still be wrong on that issue and I'm, I'm willing to say that that could be true. Now, uh, third Another argument for amillennialism is it's the simplest view of the end times. Now, you know what? The amillennials have something there. It is, amillennialism is the simplest view of an overview of, the, of history. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But arguably has an unsatisfying explanation of Revelation 20. And as we heard from George last week, what is the ultimate test of whether a doctrine is true or not? It's because it's biblical. And if you have a passage like Revelation 20, I don't know how you get around it. Then I was given another argument, and that is, uh, this is sure to come up next week, I promise you. If it doesn't, I'll make it <laughs> come up. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that the saints must reign on earth. This is key to the amillennial argument. Can we go back one more time? I'm sorry. And then we'll come back to this one. They, they want to argue that this time frame up here in the intermediate state, the disembodied believers who reign with Christ are reigning with him. Now that is a very plausible explanation, by the way. Uh, let me emphasize this because I'm, I'm decidedly pre-mill. That's where I'm coming from. But this understanding of uh, how believers reign with Christ, if it weren't for Revelation 20, I would say is a pretty good explanation. It, it makes a lot of things work. And this idea of reigning with Christ in the intermediate state could be plausible. But I come to, and uh, you'll have to await the response to what I'm about to say till next week, is Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. And you, O Lord, have made them a kingdom of priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, Paul Mills, who's not here right now, there's the gauntlet. I want to hear Paul's answer on that next week. So, uh, why I thank God for amillennialism. Uh, amillennialists are reformed in their theology. I don't know of any amillennialists who don't hold to the sovereignty of God in election. They're, they're reformed, and that's, that's where I find myself. The second thing I love about amillennialism, and it, 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 this is the argument that draws me the most towards amillennialism, even though I don't go all the way there, is they have a vision of the unity of the Bible and of his work among the people of God. I buy that. I am 100% there. Uh, which, by the way, is why I'm a historic premillennialist as opposed to a dispensationalist. 
but I'm still not an amillennialist. And as we'll talk about next week, I take Revelation, as I read Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 7, and then even 8 through 14 or 16, whatever it is, the end of the chapter, um, I, I just see that as predicting a millennium to come. And I, ha I see other passages that seem to indicate something different. And therefore, I am a um, not an amillennialist. And then, take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Because I'm going to argue in two weeks from now. Um, boy, this is tough. Don't interpret anything I say as being cocky about my position. Because I think, I think that there's uh, something to be said about amillennialism. Even if I don't agree with it. Um, I'm going to say that they take an overly figurative view of several key passages in Scripture. Now, what we're going to talk about in two weeks is what does overly figurative mean? And I'm going to give George a little bit of a rash next week, fair warning, on what does it mean to be literalist in your understanding of Scripture? Because I don't care who you are or what end view that you have, you've got to say two things. One is, we don't have all the goods. Nobody, none of these four views is without blemish in our understanding. And the second is, all of us have to take some passages as figurative, as not literal in their um, how we expect them to work out in history. Uh, so that is what we're going to talk about in two weeks. I'm sure that next week we'll talk about them a little bit. Okay, now what I want to do is I want to go to premillennialism and uh, come back here one more time. Uh, go to the historic premill. Um, notice, by the way, this is the clearest of all the charts. That, that's not my fault. That's just the way it happened. But I, I, it's fitting, you know, it's fitting. Okay, so let me go through this really quickly. Uh, same thing is happening here uh, that we talked about in amillennialism and in postmillennialism. We all pretty much see this is one continuous time uh, with the cross being the center of that time, if not in years, at least in terms of importance. We will enter into a period of the last days when sin, uh, men will have itching ears and will only put up with hearing what they want to hear. And because of that, we are going to enter into a particularly bad part of history, which is the Great Tribulation. And we have seen many periods of tribulation throughout our history. But this is going to make all the rest of them look like kindergarten. This is going to make everything look like child's play. Now, the dispensational premillennialist thinks that we are going to be raptured. Uh, those who are left alive at that time are going to be caught up to him in the heavens. The Christians who have died in Christ will be resurrected to him. And at that point, we will begin a period. Uh, I'm not going to overly technical right now. Come in three weeks if you want this. Um, 
Anyways, we will be raptured before the tribulation or in the great tribulation. Like I said, we'll talk about that later. But then uh, the historic pre-mill thinks that we are going to go through the tribulation. I'll give you one reason why, and then we'll talk about more reasons later. Israel was saved through the plagues of Egypt. They weren't saved out of the plagues of Egypt. God could have easily uh, beam me up, Scotty, and put them straight over into the Sinai Desert and done to whatever he wanted to do with Egypt, but he did not. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. But this resurrection will happen, Christ will return, and then we will enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the essence of what premillennialists believe. So what I want to do now is Sam Storms, in his book, Kingdom Come, wrote an entire chapter uh, outlining six reasons why he's not a premillennialist. Okay, and he couches them in uh, interesting terms. This is on your sheet, by the way, if you pull it out. And it's Kingdom Come, pages 136 and 137. He says, first of all, you must necessarily believe that physical death will continue to exist beyond the time of Christ's second coming. We believe Christ is going to come right here, and there is a period of a thousand years in which there will be death. Yes, Sam, that is what I believe. Number two, you must necessarily believe that the natural creation will continue beyond the time of Christ's second coming to be subjected to the curse imposed by the fall of man. Yeah, that is what I believe. Because the new heavens and the new earth don't come until Revelation 21. Okay, so I do believe. Now, I do believe that they will be ameliorated. I believe that they will be lessened. And perhaps, this is an opinion. I don't know if I'm right on this or not. But perhaps we will be a part of ameliorating that. I've always thought, wouldn't it be cool if somehow we can perfect launches at Vandenberg Air Force Base and, and we would have 100% uh, sure. And then what we do is we take all the nuclear waste and we load them up on rockets and launch them straight at the sun. Right? Wouldn't that be a great way to get rid of a lot of pollution? Uh, I, that's an opinion. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen. I don't know. But the point is, is that, uh, yes, I do believe that natural creation will continue. Point C, you must necessarily believe that the new heavens and new earth will not be introduced until a thousand years subsequent to the return of Christ. I'll be honest. Uh, Sam Storms wrote an excellent book. It's a little polemic for my taste, and I didn't read the entire of the book, but especially like the first eight chapters. I really enjoyed reading what he had to say. I didn't enjoy this so much because for each of his criticisms, I say, Amen. D, you must necessarily believe that unbelieving men and women will still have the opportunity to come to saving faith in Christ for at least a thousand years subsequent to his return. Now, this is an interesting point. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in a letter to somebody, said one time, the, the question was put to him, well, you know, why wouldn't God give someone an extra chance to receive Christ after they died and they realize the predicament that they're going to be in by going to hell. You understand the question? 
Why, why wouldn't God give them a second chance? And Lewis's response was, and whether he literally thought this or no, I think he's doing it for the effect. He said, he said God would give them a thousand chances if he thought that it would make a difference. You see, a person who doesn't want to submit, doesn't want to bow the knee to Christ, doesn't want to go to heaven on God's terms, are going to be excluded from heaven on their terms. Now, I'm playing a little loose with theology here. So, um, don't take what I'm saying as literally true, but I think the essence of the point is that there will be people who see God in the millennium. They see the perfect culture. They see a perfect uh, government happening. And some of them will have a greater opportunity than the average person on earth today to receive Christ. And they will receive Christ. And then there will be those who live through the millennium and they will see the perfect government. They will see all these things and they'll still tell God to take a long walk off a short pier. Remember, the issue is not how much light is given. The issue is does God elect that person? And if they're the people that are going to refuse. They will refuse no matter how much light they're given. Even if they died and they looked on the lake of fire, they still would not say, ooh, I want to go over here. They're still going to be in rebellion. E, you must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not be finally resurrected until at least 1,000 years subsequent to the return of Christ. I believe that that's exactly the point of Revelation 20, I think, verse 7. F, you must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not be finally judged and cast into eternal punishment until at least 1,000 years subsequent to Christ. Um, this, is, this is what I believe. Uh, if I wanted to write a chapter on what I thought of the millennium, I could hardly do better than take this particular chapter out of Sam Storm's book and say, this is what I believe. Now, uh, he gets into arguments and he shoots down, he attempts to shoot down some of the things I say. Again, I don't want to appear arrogant about this. I do believe that I'm right, but I don't want to appear as if he has nothing but bad arguments because he does have good arguments and he is a very intelligent man and uh, I believe I'm going to be washing his car when we get to the millennial kingdom. And while I'm washing it, I'm going to be snickering. <coughs> Told you. Um, no, if, if, if there are shoe shiners, I will be shining Sam Storm's and Anthony Hokema's shoes uh, because these are godly men who love Jesus and we just happen to disagree on these issues. So please, again, uh, I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking that I'm, even though I am a little bit poking fun at a few of the things, I don't want you to think that I'm doing so arrogantly uh, and I don't want you to think that uh, I think that they're dead wrong. I think they're, I think they're mistaken. And I, but I think that they make some good points. And 
this will be a lot of fun when we address this next week. So please, if you have any questions, especially about something we covered here, please write them down. Send me an email. I'm happy for us to talk about it, but if you talk about it tonight, which I'll be happy to do, know that tomorrow morning I will have forgotten about that conversation and I won't write it down. I'm Fair warning. Uh, and we will look forward to next week. Come back and uh, we'll enjoy. So let's, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, again, I do praise you for Anthony Hokema. I thank you for Sam Storms and Kim Rudelbarger who are all uh, love you and look at the end times through an Amil lens. And God, I pray that you will keep us humble even as we poke fun and enjoy each other next week. Enable us, Lord Jesus, to also, uh, while we are persuaded of our position, to be loving and gracious to the others at the same time. Give us, Lord, grace to have the first and foremost thing, and that is that we would have hope in you, that you win and that you are glorified through all that will happen in the end times. And Lord, we pray with your best friend, John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.